You're listening to 1968 in Hindsight, a podcast that uses scholarship and conversation to bring historical perspective to contemporary issues. My name is Jason Steinhauer. And my name is Paul Steggy. In this podcast miniseries, we'll be taking a look at key issues facing our world today and showing that to better understand them, we have to look back to 1968. A closer look at that iconic year can help us think about these issues in new ways and perhaps get us one step closer to finding solutions. It's a common refrain in American politics. People are disenchanted with the system, the candidates, the parties. Americans are overwhelmingly angry with the federal government. A new survey from the American Customer Satisfaction Index finds American satisfaction in dealing with the federal agencies hitting an all-time low. 31% are angry about how the federal government is working. 42% are dissatisfied but not angry. It's not only elections. Today, just 18% of Americans say they trust the government to do what is right. In the early 1960s, trust in the government neared 80%. By the end of the decade, it was below 60% and has been sinking ever since. Can this phenomenon be traced to our year in question, 1968? My name is Dan Hallen. The first person we reached was Professor Daniel C. Hallen. I'm Professor of Communication at the University of California, San Diego. He has written about the media, politics, and public opinion. I study political communication and the the history of the news media and journalism in the United States. I think of the greatest erosion of trust in the government as coming mainly later. But... A lot happened in 1968 that I think did erode people's trust as part of a long process of erosion. Certainly the Tet Offensive was one of those things. Our previous episode delved into Vietnam. In 1968, the true nature of the war came home via television. The Tet Offensive was special mainly because it was the first time that you saw dramatic combat night after night. Television was already tremendously influential. Since 1964, it had been where most Americans received their news. You know, there's kind of a myth. You know, Vietnam was the true horror of war night after night on the television screen. In general, that was not the case. During the Tet Offensive, it was different. So it was a big change from the routine of Vietnam coverage. Just you know, just for a short period, but it was a big change. At the start of the war, the media narrative had been supportive, cautious, and sanitized. Networks did not wish to offend advertisers. What reporters witnessed on the ground, however, coupled with their sources in Washington, gradually made them skeptical. The journalists were more the followers than they were leaders in the change of opinion. By early 1967, a majority of the public already disapproved of Johnson's handling of the war. But it wasn't really until 1968, 1969 that the news coverage began to become much more critical. After returning from Vietnam, Walter Cronkite, deemed the most trusted man in America, hosted a 30-minute special report on CBS on February 27, 1968. Cronkite did a special broadcast in which he did something very unusual for a television anchor, which was to give a commentary. To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe, in the face of the evidence, the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. 
To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. There are a lot of stories that Lyndon Johnson saw this broadcast and thought, well, um, you know, this is the end. It's hard to imagine that Cronkite's commentary was really decisive. But I do think that they saw Cronkite's change as um, symbolic of a change in public opinion. Um, you know, 1968 was an election year. This war was not playing well for them. The mood in America was souring, not because of the press, but because of a populace increasingly dissatisfied with the way their government was conducting the war in Vietnam. One of the assumptions that I particularly have um, tried to take on is the assumption that it was the media that turned people against the the Vietnam War. And I think if we really, if we look carefully at what actually happened, you know, we can see how much more complicated that process actually was. The violence was not just in Vietnam. On April 4th, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. In June, Robert Kennedy, a Democratic candidate for president in the 68 election, was assassinated. But perhaps the violence that most shocked the American public occurred in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention that August. 1968's political landscape is really an amazing set of choices and decisions that are made. That's the voice of historian David Farber. My name is David Farber. I am the Roy A. Roberts Distinguished Professor at the University of Kansas. He studies and teaches on the 1960s. The Democratic Party schisms in 1968 between those who argue that the only way to make fundamental changes is to bring in a kind of outsider, an anti-war candidate. The establishment part of the party essentially wants to maintain the status quo. And you get Hubert Humphrey, the vice president of the United States, who will become the candidate of the status quo. And you'll get Bobby Kennedy, alas, assassinated in June. And then the senator from Minnesota, Eugene McCarthy, arguing for fundamental change. And this kind of schism within the Democratic Party just explodes at their August 1968 convention, when not only are there major protests outside the convention hall, there are major protests inside the convention hall. In response, Chicago Mayor Richard Daley mobilized his police force, as well as the National Guard. They crushed the demonstrations. The violence in Chicago was seen on television by 90 million people. Angry viewers called in. They demanded to know why the networks had chosen to air such footage. Coverage of the Democratic Convention was, in important ways, a departure. The people who were being roughed up by the police here, many of them were not just protesters, but they were actually delegates, and and they included journalists. And it looks like a couple of uh, a couple of the sergeants at arms, security people, have uh, one of the members uh, under both armpits and forcing him out. Dan, rather. What's your name? Sir? And what is your name, sir? Take your hands off of me. Dan, rather. Unless you intend to arrest me, don't t- don't push me, please. There's a very famous event that took place during the convention in which Walter Cronkite was 
interviewing Dan Rather. And Rather, I think, was being roughed up himself by the police. And Cronkite was saying, uh, Dan, I think we've got a bunch of thugs here, right? So that was very unusual. Man, and we got uh, bodily pushed out of the way. This is the kind of thing that's been going on outside the hall. This is the first time we've had it happen inside the hall. uh, I'm sorry to be out of breath, but somebody felt him in his stomach doing that. What happened is a Georgia delegate, at least he had a Georgia delegate signed on, was uh, being hauled out of the hall. We tried to uh, talk to him to see why, who he was, and what the situation was. And at that instant, the security people, uh, well, as you can see, put me on the deck. And I think that it was a, a break in the usual solidarity of journalists with the forces of order. And I think it was also probably one of the events that foreshadowed the divisions, you know, and the culture wars that would later come about because a lot of the audience sided with the police and not with the protesters, but not even with the journalists. The media responded, stating that it was under attack. By the end of the summer, Americans were angry at the police, at demonstrators, at the media, and at the Democratic Party. The images from Chicago had a souring effect on the nation. Democrats united behind Johnson's Vice President Hubert Humphrey. But by the fall, it seemed that disillusionment was pushing the electorate away from both parties. An editorial in the New York Review of Books described the mood. What is new about this election is the number of people who tell you they are not going to vote. People from all walks of life, high corporation executives, SDS youths, my dentist and his technician, a Negro cleaning woman. The refusal to vote is conceived as a protest, an expression of total disgust. Count me out this time. Far from being a sign of apathy, it points to an aroused nation, resentful of the insult offered to the intelligence by the Humphrey-Nixon alternative, handed to the public like a stacked deck of cards. New York Review of Books, October 24th, 1968. The Republican candidate, and he is essentially a consensus Republican candidate at that time, Richard Milhouse Nixon, is just feasting on this division within the Democratic Party. It allows him, in a sense, to kind of finesse the hardest questions. So when he talks about the war in Vietnam, all he says is he'll find some sort of honorable resolution to the problem. Never lays out a plan. On race, again, Nixon kind of finesses the problem and talks again, though, about law and order, not the particularities of justice for African-Americans. Nixon's lead dwindled as Election Day neared. In the end, he won by 300,000 votes out of 73 million cast. In 1964, Lyndon Johnson had won the second highest number of votes for any candidate in the U.S. history and a massive electoral victory in in the Electoral College. Liberalism, in other words, which is what Lyndon Johnson ran on straightforwardly, received well over 60% of the American vote. By 1968, liberalism was in disarray. And the non-liberal candidates, remember there are three political candidates running in 1968. Liberalism is only able to exercise about 40% of the American vote. Almost 60% of the American people vote against liberalism, either choosing the kind of moderate conservative Richard Nixon or the reactionary populist candidacy of George Wallace. So Americans in 1968 look very different than they did in 1960 or 1964. The shocks to the political system really play out during the election. 
Slightly more than 60% of the U.S. voted in 1968. It would be the last U.S. presidential election where more than 60% of the voting age population actually cast a ballot. So how does thinking about this history help us today? For one, it shows how violence, particularly televised images of violence, can cultivate a sense of social disorder. It also shows that discontent with government and dissatisfaction with the system has roots in the period of the 1960s, and in particular, 1968. Already by 68, the electorate was becoming disenchanted. Voters had begun to lose faith in electoral politics and to doubt the ability of the candidates or government in general to solve problems. You know, between the early 60s and sometime in the 70s, the level of trust in government went down. There's a question, a standard survey question, you know, um, how much of the time do you trust the government in Washington to do what's right? And there was a certain point at which people began volunteering the response, never. And then the, the pollsters decided to include that as one of the categories, right? Because it became um, common enough. But the, the trend toward declining trust in government started in the 60s. Yeah, in 1968, Americans uh, across the board, across the ideological spectrum and regionally and really every kind of measure, started to voice some real fundamental discontent with the direction their nation was undergoing. There is an explosion of violence in the United States with riots and sometimes violent demonstrations. There is an uptick, a major uptick by most measures of crime and criminality in the United States during this time. Two major figures in American life, Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King are assassinated. The Vietnam War takes a major setback. The President of the United States announces he's not gonna seek re-election. Cities are burning and on our fire. Every kind of shock imaginable is happening to the American people. So Americans are beginning to sense that at least their optimism of the early 60s is not playing out the way they had hoped. Americans were retreating from engagement in the democratic process. While it can be tempting to associate that phenomenon with the rise of cable news television, political talk shows, and the internet, it has its origins well before those innovations. By the late 1960s, institutions seemed powerless to reign in the disorder broadcast into people's living rooms. Whether it was war in Vietnam or demonstrations in Chicago, scenes of violence and their wide dissemination on television led many Americans to believe that their nation was slipping into chaos. Is the American experiment working? What is the future of the United States? Those sentiments would only grow more cynical in the years ahead. You've been listening to 1968 in Hindsight, a podcast that uses scholarship and conversation to bring historical perspective to contemporary issues. 1968 in Hindsight is produced by the LePage Center for History and the Public Interest at Villanova University. For more information on the sources used in this episode or any of our previous episodes, please visit our website, lepage.villanova.edu. Special thanks to our undergraduate fellow, Claire Hoffman, for her reading of the editorial from the New York Review of Books. Thanks for listening.